This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Zach Lutz. I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, we're going to be continuing our sermon series in 2 Samuel. But first, I wanted to reflect a little bit on our church service. You know, we just uh, sang um, this song about better is one day. And I was trying to scribble it down real quick, uh, the, exact, uh, the, the exact words I wanted to quote here. But one thing I asked that I would see your beauty, where your glory dwells. And I don't know how often we pause and we think about the words that we're singing in our songs. You know, we come together for worship and we're asked to sing these songs. They're familiar. We know them. We're, we're singing these words and then we're asking God uh, that we could be in his presence for just one day. And it would be better than thousands elsewhere. One day in God's presence is so much more valuable. And the reason that Christians say this, uh, the reason that we sing these songs, is because we believe that's what we were made for. We were made to live our entire existence before the presence of God. Uh, but something happened. We were separated from God. When Adam and Eve took the fruit uh, and they ate of it, they were put out of the Garden of Eden, out of the presence of God. And although he would show up in, in um, certain places with certain people at certain times, there's something specially significant about where his presence dwells. There's this problem with carnivores, animals that are bred in captivity. These animals don't do well in captivity. It's not what they were made for. They were made for the wild, for the hunt, for the chase. And so when we have things like cheetahs and lions and bears, and we are able to breed them in captivity, we as good humans try to rebuild some of these endangered populations, and we try to reintroduce these captive-bred carnivores to the wild. But statistically, you can look this up, two-thirds die. Two-thirds die. Do you know what they usually die from? Human-related accidents. Some of it is hunting, uh, but a lot of it has to do with like getting hit by a car. Because there's something instinctively that wild carnivores have that when they see humans or anything attached to them, they know that is not safe. These same wild animals bred in captivity don't have those same instincts. Captive bred animals struggle when reintroduced to the wild because although they were made to thrive in the wild, they were malformed ill-prepared to face the dangers that were actually there. We have a similar problem, and the analogy breaks down. We were made for the presence of God. It is where we were made to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion and exercise authority, where there would be no more hurts and no tears, and all of this in God's presence. So the Bible will speak of all of humanity yearning to be in the presence of God. Now, we don't all are able to uh, state it in those words. You see it, though, in cultures throughout the world. Humanity desires to be around something holy, something other, something set apart, something greater than themselves. And it's because that's how God made them to be. Of course, not around just any holiness, but the holiness of the living God. Of course, the problem is, as I mentioned, that we were born into captivity, according to the Bible. Sin captivity is how it describes it, raised on a diet of paganism and agnosticism, so that when we were reintroduced to where we were made to be, into the presence of the living God, we are in danger. 
Because we've forgotten something that at one time was instinctive. That the presence of the living God is dangerous. What about God's presence is dangerous? Is it really dangerous to be in the presence of God? The answer is yes. The Bible will say that it is his holiness. Living in the presence of God should be the goal of every single Christian. And maybe we assume that this happens uh, just over time or naturally in the Christian life. God is everywhere, and so we're surrounded by his presence. But actually, the Bible speaks about a certain kind of special presence. And this special presence that Christians are supposed to be living their lives before and surrounded by so that um, they are living into God's order of existence, that they might be fruitful and multiply and things blessed and all, all of these things that we talk about as Christians, this special presence is what we're after. And good, it is right, and good and right as it is for us to live in God's presence, our story today is about how we've been malformed, ill-prepared in our sin captivity to be in the presence of God. That we have forgotten something that was once instinctual. So if you would, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart, with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's holy word stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. This story is an example of sin-captive humanity being released into their natural habitat and finding that they have been malformed and ill-prepared. Uzzah and David, malformed and ill-prepared, entered into God's presence and had disastrous consequences. Now, I wonder what your first reactions to reading this story are. Maybe you've read it before and you've got some questions. Uh, maybe you've got some answers about it. It does seem a little bit like an overreaction on God's part, right? Like you read through this and you're like, wait a second. They're moving the ark. Uzzah's trying to stop the ark from falling into the mud. Uzzah, David, and 30,000 people are trying to be in the presence of God. They've neglected the ark at the house of Abinadab for 30 years. They decide to take up, go pick it up, and take it to the city um, and, and uh, eventually build a temple for it uh, where they will worship God. They're trying to do the right thing, and yet this crossing the line merits a death sentence? What kind of God is this? 
Now, to understand this, we're going to need some history. See, the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box that was covered in gold. And it had a top on it that was also covered in gold, and it had um, uh, cherubim angels that were also made out of gold, and it had ringlets on the side that poles were supposed to go through. And this gold box contained a few things. A jar of manna from the wilderness when they were wandering in the wilderness, and God fed them miraculously with manna. It had Aaron's staff that had budded miraculously by God. And it had the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. But the Ark of the Covenant wasn't just a golden box, though. It was supposed to be covered with a veil when they transported it. In the tabernacle and in the temple that they would ultimately build, it was placed in the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would only enter once a year, the inner sanctum of the sanctuary. It was holy. It went before the people of God in their wanderings and represented the presence of God, but not just a general presence that we all experience under his omnipresence, is what we call it, but the fact that God is infinite and fills all spaces and is in this room, right? It's not that. It's a special kind of presence because of what I mentioned earlier. Adam and Eve lived in the presence of God, but when they ate the forbidden fruit, they were put outside of the presence of God. And now humanity is longing to get back to the presence of God, and they get bits and pieces of it. But when the ark comes, it's God saying, my special presence will dwell with you, Israel. I will be with you. What good news the bad actions of history seem to be reversed. Humanity seems to be able to be in the presence of God again. And in some sense, we can say that mankind was being released from its sin captivity where it could once again flourish. Israel was supposed to be a people who lived before the living God and had a society that all of the other nations envied. Asked questions about it. Why does it work this way? It's so much better than what we've seen before. Humans were made to live in the presence of God. The presence of God was dangerous, though, as Uzzah would find out. The holiness of God is piercing. In order to understand what we need to live in the presence of God, we have to learn from Uzzah about two things that we need to take very seriously about being in the presence of God. Now, the first one, again, requires us to go back in time a little bit and listen to these words from Exodus. This is when God gave the instructions on how to build the ark. He says, you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And then in Numbers 4, this is all before 2 Samuel, if you're wondering, chronologically speaking. So they've, they've received these instructions already. In Numbers 4, it says that they must be careful to carry the ark with the poles and not touch it lest they die. I don't know if you remember this story. This will actually come chronologically after. Um, but the story that Isaiah's, uh, of Isaiah's vision of the throne room, you know, he comes in in Isaiah 6, and he's coming into the presence of God, and he gets this vision of the heavenly throne room, and the, his robe fills the temple, and it's majestic. But one thing, um, for our purposes, stands out, and he sees these angels. They're called seraphim. They've got six sets, six wings, three sets. Um, one set to fly with, one set to cover their feet, and one set to cover their faces. Because they fly around the presence of the living God day and night declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Now just think about this for a second. They're not sinful creatures. They're not fallen creatures. Creatures created by God who must cover their face to be in his presence because it is a dangerous thing. 
to be in the presence of a holy, living God. God's holiness, God's presence is dangerous. And what was once instinctual in human beings, we have forgotten in our fallenness. But God knew this. And he gave them instructions in Exodus and Numbers to remind them of how to take care when, he, when they're in his presence to make sure that they don't die. He said, be careful. Follow these instructions. Listen to my words. But David and Uzzah, the priests, and all Israel had forgotten these instructions. They neglected God's words, and they were reckless in the presence of the holy God, and there were dire consequences. Verse 3 says they put the ark of God on a new cart, not carried on poles by the priests. And in verse 6, when the ox cart stumbled, Uzzah steadied it with his hands, but the anger of the Lord, verse 7, was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down, and he died there. Uzzah presumed that God's instructions on how the ark was to be moved were relatively meaningless. And I imagine it went something like this, you know. Uzzah grew up in his dad's house, Abinadab. Abinadab had had the ark for some 30 years. Um, What had happened with the ark is an interesting story. Um, You know, uh, Saul basically tried to use it as a weapon, and so he tried to, like, send it at the Philistines. Um, And God wasn't really about that, so actually Saul kind of lost the battle. Um, But the Philistines had the ark. And they got, well, we got the ark now, and they put it in their temple next to their own gods because they figured, like, now you can know that you're a servant of this god. You know, you're going to be lesser than our gods. But then they come back the next morning, and their god's, like, falling over on its face. And they're like, oh, man, that's weird. And they have to, like, put it back up, stand it up. And they come back the next morning, and their god has fallen on its face again with its arms and maybe legs chopped off. I'm trying to remember now, but whatever. I think it's just arms. Um, and what god is saying, and they transport it to another city in the, in, 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 um, in the Philistine nation, And this city starts breaking out in like hives and boils and sicknesses until finally the Philistines put it on an ark and then they send the oxen away towards Israel. (laughs) They're just like, go that way. Take this thing away from us. We don't want it. So the Philistines have put it on an ark. It had showed up at Uzzah's house, probably when he was a child, uh, on a cart. He thought to himself, well, the Philistines transferred it on an ark. God must not really care about those instructions. Maybe God didn't really mean to always carry it with the golden poles. Because you know what? God really just wants to be with us. That's what he longs for. He just wants to be with us whatever way that happens. He doesn't really care as long as it happens, as long as we're diligent to go get it. I wonder if we do the same with God's word. If we're okay reading certain passages as if he didn't really mean it. And I think one way to think about this is actually how we think about worship, what's happening right now. I think we assume sometimes that God is content with our inattentiveness, our half-hearted singing, our cursory reflection on our sinfulness, and our uninterested prayers. As if God's like, I'm just happy you're here. I'm glad you showed up today. Ultimately, I think this roots from the fact that we think worship is primarily about us, which is funny when you think about the word worship. We come to worship something else. But we think worship is primarily about us. Whether or not we liked or were moved by the service, whether or not we learned something from the preaching or teachings or readings. But it seems to me that Scripture talks about worship primarily being about God. Was he glorified by our attentiveness to his word, our vigilance in prayer, our honesty in confessing our sins? God's word commands us how we ought to worship. And the question lingers about whether or not we take God's word seriously. We may want desperately to be in the presence of a living God, where all of these good things that we hear about in Scripture come from. But if we do not take seriously God's word, 
we're in the position of Uzzah. It's dangerous. To be in God's presence and thrive, we must take his word seriously and all that it commands. But this isn't the only thing that we learn to take seriously from Uzzah if we want to thrive in the presence of God. Uzzah also failed to take his sin seriously. And this is our second point. When Uzzah saw the ark tumble and sway, Uzzah considered the ramifications of the ark of the covenant, the symbol of the presence of God, falling into the dirt. You know how, like, we just kind of instinctively, in some sense, have an understanding that a country's flag shouldn't be lowered, wadded up, and thrown on the ground? It's a symbol of something important, and to do so is highly disrespectful. I imagine Uzzah wanted to protect God's presence from the dirty ground. But in God's perspective, the ground wasn't dirty. Uzzah was. The ground was holier than Uzzah. The ground had never rebelled against its creator. The ground had never disobeyed when God told it to do something. The ground was faithful. Uzzah was not. You know, Jesus in the New Testament would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And during that story, uh, the crowds would be shouting Hosanna. And there's just like this huge party. And the religious leaders in Jerusalem get a little testy. And they ask Jesus, they're like, hey, can you tell these people to like quiet down? They really shouldn't be saying stuff like this. And Jesus says, you know what? You might be able to silence them but you would never be able to silence the rocks. The rocks would cry out. The rocks know who I am. When Jesus was crucified, all of humanity stood by jeering, looking at, spitting on God himself, and the sun hid its face. It says it went dark. When he died, the earth shook. Rocks split open at the death of their creator. For Uzzah to be able to thrive in the presence of the Lord, he needed to take his sin seriously. And I'm not talking about just his individual sins. I'm talking about his disposition as a sinner. Our catechism will speak this way. It'll say, into what estate did mankind fall in their rebellion? And it'll say that we fell into a state of sin and misery. Not just that we did some sins that caused us misery. We were in an estate of sin and misery. We are dispositionally less holy than the ground because we rebelled against God himself. Uzzah is not in a holy state. He's in a state of sin and misery because he is human. Now, we don't like marinating on this thought for too long. It makes us uncomfortable. But the Bible marinates on it for some thousands of years before providing the true answer to our holiness in Jesus Christ. There were animal sacrifices and ritual purity that were ongoing and never-ending because we as men and women were dispositionally unholy at every single turn. Every single time we came back to the temple, another sacrifice I mean, I hear people say this a lot. I mean, I'm a pretty good person. What's God got against me? Or even maybe, well, I've done some bad things, but did I really deserve the death sentence? Uzzah thought he was a pretty good person. Uzzah thought that surely it was the thought that counts, that he was helping protect the ark. But God does not see his his actions as helpful, but presumptuous before his holiness something instinctual that we have forgotten 
in our sin-bred captivity. In order to flourish in God's presence, we need to take his word seriously. We also need to take our sin seriously. But I've got to be honest. Um, it seems pretty hopeless to be in God's presence then, if these are the requirements. I don't take God's word that seriously. And I surely don't take my sin that seriously. I like to downplay it as often as I can. We are sinners. We fail to obey God's word. We fail to take our sin seriously. Where's the hope? How can we ever be in God's presence? And David's response is instructive. This happens in verses 8 and 9. And what I find fascinating about this is David is angry first. He's just like us. Like there's a huge party going on. We're celebrating, you know, God himself returning um, in some sense to the promised land, right? Coming into Jerusalem, into David's city. Uh, David's re-recognizing the importance and placing God in a, in a primary seat of importance in the, in the major city where everybody would have to come. Um, 30,000 people are here singing and, and dancing with music, um, and then God strikes somebody dead. Like, one, he kind of, like, ruined all your planning of this party, right? Like, they had planned to get 30,000 people involved, um, and then God just, like, shut it down. Because as soon as somebody dies, it's like, the party's over, you know? Um, he's angry, but then he's afraid. David could be angered by God just as we might. David even named the place Perez Uzzah, which if you're looking in your Bibles, it might have a footnote, but it actually explains what it means right before, uh, which is that the Lord broke out against Uzzah. David doesn't allow his anger, though, to change what he knows to be true from God's word. Here's what I mean. Uh, some of us read the story and we scoff. How could a good and loving God do such a thing? I know justice better than he does, and that's not just. David may have started there in his anger. He may have said, God, this doesn't make any sense. Why would you do this? But upon further reflection, it ends in fear. And this is, if I can paraphrase a little bit, what David says, how could a just and holy God not kill me if I bring this ark into my city? You see, for David, he actually trusted God's word to be true, and that means his interpretation of events must be wrong. This wasn't a vengeful God lashing out against a small error. This was a holy God who desired to be in the presence of his people, knew that his holiness was so great that it would consume people, and gave them instructions to protect themselves because they had forgotten what they once knew. The question isn't, why did God kill Uzzah? The question is, why didn't God kill everyone there? David's answer is God's inexplicable mercy. And this is really fascinating because in this passage, if we learn nothing else, what we've learned is that touching the presence of God equals death. Touching the presence of God has disastrous consequences for us. But in the New Testament, something fascinating happens. In 2 Corinthians, it says that we are the temple of the living God. Just think about this. The Ark of the Covenant was eventually going to be carried. David was going to collect it in the verses following our passage. You can read about it there. Um, he's, he's going to come collect it, make some sacrifices. He's going to take it into the city, and eventually his son Solomon's going to build a temple for this. And it says that God's glory is going to come into the temple and fill it, and it would be majestic. 
Now, God had rules for all of approaching the temple and what you needed to be ritually pure to come. And we all knew, even in that moment, that you cannot go into the Holy of Holies. What they did for the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies once a year to make a sacrifice to the people is they tied a rope around his leg and hung bells on him so that if he were to fall over dead, they could pull him out of the curtain without having to go in and risk another life. We cannot be in the presence of the living God. And yet, in 2 Corinthians, it says we are the temple of the living God. In 1 Corinthians, it'll say we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And Peter will say that you are a holy nation and a royal priesthood. This shouldn't happen. Any Jew in the story listening to this to say that God's presence now indwells us would be shocked. They said there is no way you would die the instant God tried. His holiness is too great. But 2 Corinthians 5, right before it calls us temples of God, uh, explains how this happens. It says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Jesus makes us holy. I mentioned this already, but when David would eventually come to collect the ark, he would sacrifice an ox and a fatted calf. And it's fascinating because they pick up the ark. They're carrying it with priests this time on the poles like they're supposed to be. They take six steps and he stops them sacrifices two animals. They marched the rest of the way to Jerusalem, and then it doesn't say how many, but it, it sounds like hundreds. They sacrificed tons of animals. The symbolic way to sanctify the people and the place that the Ark of the Covenant, the symbolic presence of God would rest, was through a tremendous amount of bloodshed, but all of it was symbolic. Jesus is not symbolic. Jesus is the real deal. Not just ritual, not just symbolic. His blood would reconcile. His blood would redeem. His blood would make us holy and end the sacrificial system because by him we are made pure once and for all. Think about this. The holy presence of God, fully incarnate in Jesus Christ, came into our midst and we did not die. The full presence of God came into our midst and touched us. And instead of getting blasted away like Uzzah, our sin is taken on him. Upon him was laid the chastisement of us all, and he was led like a lamb to the slaughter to make a people holy, a royal priesthood, and reconcile God's children to live in the presence of the living God. The only way that we experience God's presence, the only way that we live the lives that we're supposed to be with fullness and joy, the only place where all wounds are healed and all tears wiped away is by becoming members of this royal nation. Experiencing the mercy of God towards us in Christ. God's presence is dangerous. But we need not fear because we have been shown God's greatest mercy in Jesus Christ, who makes us not only holy, 
but temples of the living God where God's presence itself comes and indwells us. Never able to be separated again from the presence of the living God. Jesus makes us holy. Now Jesus, for his disciples, wanted something for his disciples uh, where they could know that God's holiness, God's presence was specially with them. And so he gave them uh, this sacrament. He gave them various means of grace, but this is one of the means of graces that we talk about. And it's this table that they were supposed to do as often as they gathered together where the promises that Jesus would be with them would be reconfirmed again and again. And what was this promise other than my body and my blood are sufficient for you? It is your only hope. You have nothing else. (laughs) This table is a means of grace where we can enter specially into the presence of the Lord. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering his name, now give it to you. And he said, take this bread and eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, As I say often, this table uh, does not belong to Trinity Church or our denomination. It is the table of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, who wants you to experience his presence in a special and unique way. But it does come with a warning, because as we just learned, being in the presence of God is a dangerous thing. If your only hope for holiness is Jesus, if you've been baptized into his name and you're a member in good standing of his church, then this table is for you. His body and his blood is for you. If you're not sure of these things, if these things are not true, if you're not sure that Jesus is who he says he is, know that this table comes with a warning. Sickness, death, and 1 Corinthians talks about this. Being in the special presence of the living God can be dangerous. So we would ask you to make use of the prayer in your bulletin. Come talk to Kyle or myself or our staff members. Um, If you're interested in, in learning more about this, Um, And and come and partake another day. We would love to have you come partake. The invitation is open, but with a warning of how dangerous the presence of the living God can be. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come down the center aisle and go to these two serving stations on my right and my left. Um, There, the server will hand you bread, and you can take the wine. Um, I believe this side is going to have gluten-free, so if you require gluten-free bread, please head that way. And then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would transform these common elements of bread and wine into their spiritual purpose. That by partaking of them in faith, we might spiritually be in the presence of Christ himself. That we might know his great love for us. That caused his body to be broken and his blood to be spilt. And that we might taste his love upon our lips. That he would sacrifice himself to make us holy, royal, children of the living God. We thank you for this great mercy. And we ask for this Holy Spirit only because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen.